Episode 9 Excalibur This is Casey James. I don't know where exactly I am. I don't know what's going on. There's a lot I don't know. But I'm going to figure it out. By the time we get in sight of Old Woman Hartsman's farmhouse, the sun is just peeking over the horizon. Given it's midsummer, that probably means it's something like four in the morning. Alright, I'm exaggerating. Probably not quite that early, but still, it's daylight. I'm wet, and although I've tipped my shoes out and wrung out my socks, I still have mud in my shoes and blisters forming from walking in wet socks. But daylight. <laughs> of course, nothing is that easy. Just because we can see the farmhouse doesn't mean much. Between us and it, there is a swampy gorge where the remnants of that stream flow down into what might, on any other day, be a pretty little patch of wetland. There are probably birds nesting there, maybe even turtles or things. Right now, it just looks like more blisters and mud and the potential for a turned ankle. I can smell the dank, stagnant water and reed smell of the wetland from here. North of that, and the sun is rising so I can actually tell which way is north. There is a rugged, broken cliffside of lichen-encrusted rocks. It's pockmarked with caves or burrows of some sort. Small, dark holes in the stone that give it the look of something unreal. I guess it is unreal. It's dream stuff. All of this is. Even Erlich Khan and the cultists, maybe even the merman, Dracula. Whatever he is. It takes us a while to get down into the gorge, going slowly because we're both tired and our shoes are wet. Dream stuff or not, I have to say, hiking in wet trainers is one of my least favourite pastimes. Just behind being attacked by eldritch monsters, getting caught in earthquakes and cave-ins, and being chased by cultists. Or monsters. <sighs> anyway, it takes a while, and then it takes an equally long while to climb back out on the other side. You'd think someone could have built a bridge or something, I mutter. I don't think there's enough traffic to make it worth their while, says Deacon. Also, dream. I know he's right, but I still wish there was an easier way across. The side of the gorge is steep enough that we're doing more scrambling and almost climbing than walking. And it's choked with brambles and the occasional tree. There isn't any sort of path or anything either, just rocks and dirt and prickly brambles. Some of them even have berries on them, but I, I don't know what they are, and I'm not game to eat one to check if it's a blackberry or something toxic. 
It looks like a blackberry. And the brambles are thorny enough, but... Yeah. In the distance, I hear an eerie howl. Then another. Not like dogs howling. This is... I don't know what it is. But it makes the hair on the back of my neck stand on end. And a little punch of adrenaline tingle in my fingertips. Well... That's not good, says Deacon. Understatement is apparently the fashion of the day. No, I agree. Definitely not good. We pause in place, leaning against an old oak tree that's growing almost sideways out of the steep hillside. Its roots have dug into the rock, and the dirt piled up against them forms narrow ledges, almost like stairs. I suppose they might even count as stairs if we were going down them. But we're going uphill, so it's probably moot. The howling comes again, a little louder, but I still can't tell exactly where it's coming from. Behind us, probably. Hopefully. Hopefully not up ahead. So we should probably keep moving, right? I say, after a moment, since Deacon is still staring into the distance like he's listening for more howling. Yes, he says, and gives his head a tiny little shake, like he's shaking off a thought. Yes, we should. We move faster after that, and neither of us has much spare breath for talking. At the top of the steep hillside, there's a ratty old post and wire sheep fence, and then a surprisingly lush meadow in front of the farmhouse. Deacon and I climb over the fence, and the sheep scattered across the pasture on the other side completely ignore us as we walk up to the farmhouse. It's an older style than most of the buildings in Kingsport, long and low made of weathered timber and whitewashed stone blocks, with a wide veranda across the front. The whole house is raised on stumps, too, with a single, worn, wooden step leading up to the veranda and the front door. Below it, the shadows pool and gather under the house like water. Deacon doesn't even hesitate, just strides up and knocks at the door. Deacon! I hiss. It's super early. What if they're asleep? He smirks at me and says, Then they'll be happier being woken up than finding us whispering on their doorstep, won't they? It's almost the same answer I gave him in the cave, in my maybe a dream, before I woke up with the cultists. I narrow my eyes. And I would answer with something clever and scathing, but before I can, the door opens. The woman who stands there is not really old, although she's clearly older than me. Maybe old enough to have a kid my age, even, although I wouldn't say that for sure. Her hair is streaked with iron grey, and she has laugh lines around her eyes, 
and she's muscled like a bear. Seriously, a bear that does weightlifting, maybe. The sleeveless jerkin she's wearing shows off biceps that most men I know would probably swoon over, and certainly feel envy about. And she must be close to six foot tall as well. I am a little intimidated. Mara, says Deacon happily, and steps forward into a hug that they both clearly expect, and that I didn't expect until it happens. Um, hi, I say awkwardly. Deacon steps back and says, Casey, this is Mara Holtzman. Mara, Casey here needs a sword. A sword, is it? says the woman, smiling. Her smile does nothing to reassure me. It has too many teeth in it to be really friendly, and I revise my opinion. She reminds me of a wolf more than a bear. I smile and shrug and give Deacon a look which I hope is more curious than alarmed. Judging from his grin and Mara Hartsman's, it may not be. A sword, says Deacon, for questing, like we talked about. That's something else, then, says Mara. I may have something for you. Come inside. Inside is a warm, cosy little house, with wooden floors and paisley wallpaper in the hallway, and an old-fashioned iron kettle that sits on the stovetop to heat up and whistles this high-pitched tweet when the water boils. Mara makes us tea rather than coffee. And it's not even actually tea, it's some herbal thing that would probably be right at home in a new age health food shop. I don't question it. Of all the strange things in the last few days, weird herbal tea is pretty low down on the list. I do think wistfully of the coffee I could be having, though. For questing, you want an old blade, she says, once we're all sitting down at the kitchen table with our steaming mugs of whatever the hell this drink is. It smells of mint and flowers, but it tastes sour and bitter, like dandelion and berries. I'm not sure I like it. The honey Mara added to it is good, and just the warmth of it is nice, after a night spent running away from things and wading through an underground river. Something with experience, says Deacon. That makes sense. I don't think it makes sense at all, but I don't say anything. I just drink my not tea and appreciate the fact that I am sitting down in an actual house, and nothing is chasing me right now. You'll have to go downstairs and choose one, says Mara. Or let one choose you. She squints at me, then adds, Salt water quenched, I think, or bone. You need something fierce, the things you're going to face. You know what I'm going to face? I ask. She shakes her head, but it's not a negation so much as a gesture of something. Frustration, maybe, 
or pity. Not in detail, she says. I'd need a forge fire to know that, and I don't care to. I'm confused, but I just nod. Deacon seems to realise, because he says, Smiths are often seers, of a sort. It's just how it works. Right, I say. Sure, why not? Deacon grins at me, and Mara nods as if that's a reasonable response. You can head down and have a look once you're done with your tea, she says, and nods in the direction of a closed wooden door on the opposite side of the kitchen. We finish our tea, and then I follow Deacon across the kitchen to the door. It is painted yellow, a pale buttercups and cream colour which matches the wallpaper and the lace curtains at the kitchen window and there are stairs behind it, impossible stairs, leading down into some impossible basement in a house that is literally built on stilts above the ground. Downstairs, I say, staring into the stairwell. Really? Oh, it gets much worse than this, Casey, says Deacon, laughing, although not unkindly. I am not reassured. I glance back at Mara Hartsman, but she is still sat at the kitchen table, watching me with those hooded eyes like a wolf or a bear, and I am reluctant to annoy her. I think I'm grateful that her answer to unexpected visitors at what must actually be close to five or six in the morning is to make us tea no matter how weird and uncaffeinated it is. <laughs> I count the stairs, going down. There are a lot. Three hundred of them exactly, although my legs get tired by the time we've gone down the first fifty. We don't talk. The whole way down, and by the time we reach the bottom, I feel like I have goo for knee joints and I need to sit down for a bit. We're going to have to go back up those, aren't we? I ask Deacon. I'm sitting on the last step, which finishes in a sort of shallow cave. There's light coming in through the cave mouth, and the floor is sand and dirt. Deacon has walked forward a bit to peer out of the cave. Maybe, he says. I heave myself to my feet again and walk over to him, to look out of the cave mouth as well. It's the bottom of the ravine, the gorge we just climbed down into and then back out of again, although a different part of it than I saw before. The brambles and trees are the same, but there's a proper lake there in front of us, the shore of it a few dozen paces away from the cave mouth. The water is dark, and still, with reeds growing up out of it at the edges, and faint ripples where the breeze stirs the surface. I think you need to go in there, says Deacon. I look at him dubiously, and say, You think I'm going to find a sword in a lake? 
Not all lakes have ladies to hand out blades, and you should probably be grateful for that. There's no naiad living in that one. You can't seriously expect me to go swimming for a sword, I say. Deacon smiles at me and shrugs, then he sits down. Mara said there'd be a blade for you down there. It's up to you to find it. If you don't think the lake is the place, that's okay. I can't come with you anyway, not for this. I'll just wait here while you figure it out. I frown at him, but he just gives me that same sunny smile and leans back against the smooth stone wall of the cave. The trouble is, I think he's right. The lake really does have the look of something out of a fantasy movie. Not a nice one, but still. I walk out of the cave and down to the lake shore, looking around carefully as I do. It's getting warm already, and the air is heavy and humid, with midges buzzing over the mud and the shallow water of the edge of the lake. On the far side of the water there is a weird bit of open ground, and when I wander over towards it to look, I see a warped, half-buried set of train tracks. Heavy, half-rotted wooden sleepers and warped metal rails emerging from the undergrowth and leading directly into the lake. The rails are still bright chrome-coloured steel, not blackened or rusted, just warped and twisted. For no reason I can think of, the image of that white rabbit comes to mind. Far away, something that isn't a dog howls again. I take a deep breath and wade into the lake along the old railway line. It's easy, so very easy to walk into the dark water. It's not even cold. As I walk deeper into the lake, I see shapes moving in the water, shadows and the outline of water plants the wind swirling the surface of the water. It feels like hands gently drawing me further in. And I should be afraid. I should. I know that. I just don't feel it. I feel a weird sort of calm, like the moment between a lightning strike and the sound of thunder. The water is up to my chin when I find the train car. I can still reach the ground if I stretch up on my toes, although it's all amorphous pondweed and soft mud down there, so I don't know that I'm walking so much as swimming in an awkwardly upright position. The train car is completely underwater, but the top of it is close enough to the surface for me to see it. It's yellow, with decorative metal things on the edges, like one of those old 1920s trolley cars. I don't know exactly why I duck my head under the water to look at the side of the train car. Logically, it doesn't make much sense. 
the lake water is dark with tannins, even though it isn't all that muddy, except where I've stirred the lake bed up, walking over and through it. I do, though. I, I take a deep breath and duck under the surface, opening my eyes wide to stare at the broken, ruined train car in front of me. It's gorgeous. The yellow paint preserved somehow by the water, and I can see better than I thought I would be able to. It's as if under the surface the water is clear as glass, and the sunlight above is filtered and intensified, turning the grey early morning into a wonderland of silver light and bubbles. The door of the train car is wide open too, inviting as a carnival ride. You know, for, for all that it's inviting, I don't think I would normally have actually gone in. Not after the snake ghost creature and the bodniki and the bloody merman in the cave this morning. I mean, normally, I wouldn't even have been wading fully clothed into a lake, much less investigating submerged wrecked vehicles, but here we are. What I'm saying is, I do go inside. I swim down and in through the open door without giving it any real thought until I'm already there. The leather seats haven't fared as well in the water as the frame of the train car, and there isn't much left of them beyond the wooden skeletons showing where they were. There is a skull on the floor, in between the rotting remnants of the seats. Not human, thank fuck, although I'm not sure what it is. Some sort of animal. Maybe a wolf or a wolverine or something, but huge. The skull is big enough that I could put it over my head like a sun hat, and it has a ragged hole in the top. There's also a dagger lying next to it, gleaming silver and chrome against the dark wood and the water plants which have drifted in here. It shines like starlight, like hope and justice, and I want it. So I swim down and grab it. It's harder than it should be, as if I'm swimming further than the six foot or so that lies between me and the dagger, and the water is cold now, but I manage. As I wrap my fingers around the handle, I hear Walker murmur from the back of my brain. Interesting. That will make things a bit easier. I swim back out without saying anything. Mostly because I'm still underwater and drowning sounds like a bad time. Not that it's been difficult at all to hold my breath. It should be, right? I should notice the urge to breathe if I'm underwater for any length of time. I haven't, and I don't, and it doesn't occur to me that that's strange until I break back through the surface of the lake and suck in a breath of air. I have no idea how long I was underwater for. It felt like a long time, but also like barely any time at all. 
I swim to the edge of the lake, then wade the last few steps out and go and find Deacon. He is officially my favorite person right now because he has somehow magically found me a towel while I've been messing about with the sunken train car. That was well done, he says as I dry off and we start back up the stairs. Thanks, I say. Not sure what I did exactly, but still, I found a knife. I show him the dagger, and he grins at me and claps me on the shoulder, his eyes gleaming. Very well done, he says. That will make a lot of things easier. It gives me a frisson of unease to hear him so perfectly echoing Walker's comment, but I shrug it off in favour of concentrating on the stairs. It's a long climb back up, and when we get back up to the farmhouse, the first thing I see is blood pooling on the wooden floor in the kitchen. You didn't mention you had wolves after you, or night gaunts, says Mara. She's frowning heavily, and there is blood spattered across her clothes and smeared on one arm, also across the walls and floor of the living room. Ah, well, I didn't think we did, says Deacon, and even I can tell he's at least exaggerating the truth. Mara frowns at him some more, then kicks something towards us. I glance down then look quickly back up and swallow. The thing she just kicked across the floor is a severed head. Not human and not wolf, but something in between. There is still blood leaking from the stump of its neck. You did, says Mara. I fixed it for you. Much obliged, then, says Deacon as if she had told him she'd fixed a leaking tap for him or something. I found a knife, I say weakly, and hold up the silver dagger. Mara Hartsman's eyes gleam like a predator in the dark, and she says, Good choice. <laughs> <laughs>